The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to Capital Weekly's regular podcast. I'm John Howard. I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And our very special guest today is Dan Walters, longtime columnist, longtime observer of California's political scene, now with Cal Matters, and for many years a newspaper columnist. And we're here to talk about the legacy of Jerry Brown. You've covered him from day one or almost day one. Almost day one. I came to the Capitol for the Sacramento Union in March of 1975, about two months after Jerry was inaugurated for his first term. So virtually the entire Jerry Brown saga, yes. What do you see different now in Jerry that you saw in 1975 or 76? Uh, Engagement. He was really basically disengaged during his first governorship. Look, he ran for governor in 74, he ran for president in 76, he ran for re-election in 78, he ran for president again in 1980, and he ran for the U.S. Senate in 1982. His entire governorship was a perpetual campaign exercise, and he really wasn't terribly engaged in in governing California during that period. He was really kind of, it was a secondary yeah. at best, maybe a tertiary interest of his during that time. Did he delegate at all during that time? If he's not running for president, did he have somebody else actually running the state or did he try to do both? <coughs> well, the real governor ran the state and that was named Gray Davis. That's what people around the Capitol called Gray Davis, his chief of staff, the real governor. Yeah. And uh, Gray just kind of kept the place going uh, during Jerry's many absences. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and... and for what, for better or worse, that's the way it worked. He, um, I, I came to Sacramento in 1979, 1980, actually. And uh, when I got here, his reputation as one of sort of a flake, sort of the moonbeam thing, sort of not really all that engaged in anything, Cerebr- very smart, uh, politics kind of odd. What, what's he really like? What did you see him as? He, how, how was he really? I thought he was kind of immature, to tell you the truth. Now, he's five years younger, or five years older than I am. I'm five years younger than he is. But the people around him in the governor's office at that time thought of him as a kid, kind of as a, as a smart kid, but not very mature, kind of yeah. uh, had to be goaded into getting, getting to places on time and doing what you had to do, and he was contrary. And if you read... The biographies of him, that's kind of the way he was when he was a kid. He was kind of contrary and difficult difficult to uh, around yeah. other people. And he was the same way as, as governor the first time. You know, I had friends in the administration. Uh, one friend in particular who was my neighbor where I lived when I first came to Sacramento. And he would have an, an appointment with Brown at Brown's office for noon. Maybe even on the weekend day, Sunday, Saturday or Sunday. Brown would show up at four o'clock or five o'clock or three o'clock. He'd sit there waiting for hours for him to show up. The appointment was set by Brown, but there was no sense of somebody's really managing his schedule. Well, not only that, but it's rude. He was a very rude guy. He was very into himself and and rude. I mean, there's this apocryphal story about him walking into somebody's office inside the governor's office, and they were all watching like the last few minutes of a championship basketball game, and he walked in and flipped off the set. And because he was there, and they were supposed to be paying attention to him and not watching basketball, but he was that way. He was he was into himself. It was all about Jerry Brown all the time, and and that's implied by the fact that he was always running for something else. He he kind of was implying he didn't want to be governor, 
because he wanted to go someplace else. He wanted to be president or he wanted to be a senator or something. And First and, time he and, ran, and I remember Mer- Mervyn Field saying uh, he was elected in 74, took off January 75, and right. he ran for president in 76. It was a, a year later he was committing himself to running for president. He ran in the Maryland primary. I was there. It was an interesting experience. He was essentially, and this is, I think, a, a, was a telling thing about Jerry, is that he put himself in the arms of the Baltimore County machine. Oh, yeah. uh, and Marvin ben Mandel, who was the governor of, of Maryland at the time, later went to prison. Uh, Wasn't Spiro Agnew ex- county executive? Spiro exec- Agnew had been the county executive of Baltimore County, but that was the Republican side. This yeah. was the Democratic machine. Uh, the head of the machine was a guy named... Uh, Ted Vinatulis, who was the county ma- county executive, TV Teddy, as he was known locally, who later ran for governor and, and, and failed. Marvin Mandel later went to prison. But Jerry was willing to do that, was willing to put himself in the arms of a questionable political organization, shall we say. That was all set up, by the way, by Nancy Pelosi, who uh, whose uh, father and brother had been the mayor of Baltimore. And yeah. that was the connection. That's what got Jerry Brown to Maryland. And he did very well in the Maryland primary. Look, Pete, there... Jimmy Carter was the kind of presumptive candidate that year for the Democratic Party, yeah. but, but he had a lot of enemies inside the party, including Marvin Mandel, who were trying to stop him from getting the nomination. And they were looking for somebody who could be a stopper, and Jerry basically volunteered to try to be the stopper. Now, he didn't stop uh, Jimmy Carter, obviously, but his name was placed in nomination at the, at the Democratic National Convention later that year. Interestingly enough, by another governor, by the name of Edwin Edwards from Los, from Louisiana, who, who also went to prison, prison at one time. Who once said, he said, I, I saw a quote from him, qu- quoting, he said, an ancient Chinese proverb, may I live long enough to see the heads of my enemies floating by on the river. That's right. But the second speech was delivered by Cesar Chavez, and that kind of captured Jerry in a way. At one hand, he was willing to play footsie with Edwin Edwards and Marvin Mandel. On the yeah. other hand, he had this thing with Cesar Chavez and the farm workers and everything else. It was you think kind of the of timing was, if the timing was different, would he run now? I mean, would he run? He's 80? He's 80. Uh, I, think, I think in his heart of hearts he would certainly like to, but he's not going to go out there and slug it out through the primaries. And I think if yeah. somebody came to him and said, we need you, Jerry, I think he would probably be willing to do so. Uh, in fact, I think you could actually surmise that he would have had a pretty good shot at becoming president had he not got ahead of himself. If he so Running in 76 didn't really hurt him. I mean, it was kind of a lark in a way. Running in 1980 was an embarrassment. He got one delegate, and once again against Jimmy Carter. And, uh, and then he tried to run for the Senate in 82 mm-hmm. and failed. I think if he hadn't run for president in 1980, if he would have paid more attention to what was going on in California, yeah. if his, and held up his popular, he'd become very unpopular in California by that point. If he'd have paid more attention to the home front, had not run for president in 1980, he probably could have won that Senate seat in 1982 and put himself in position to become president at some point. But he got ahead of himself. He just, he, just, he just couldn't help himself, I guess. He didn't have the kind of discipline that he has now. And, and he just blew it. I think. Well, I would also it. think 1980 running against a sitting Democratic president, you know, you're not going to make any friends among the Democratic establishment that you're going to need later. And, and, and try, not only taking on Jimmy Carter, but Teddy Kennedy yeah. that year. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. But he just couldn't help himself. He decided to do it anyway. Uh, he did 
kind of pretty okay in a couple of the early primaries, and then it all boiled down to Wisconsin in April of 1980, and he got one delegate, and that was the only delegate he got that year, and that just kind of sealed his fate. Of course, he tried. He ran again in 1982, 1992. Mm-hmm. Actually, did the best of all three of his runs. He actually came in second to Bill Clinton in delegate count, uh, and was second in the in the first balloting uh, of that year. But he was running out of out of the atmosphere. He had no office. He had nothing. You know, he, it's amazing he did as well as he did. Uh, frankly, he just uh, he just was immature in that first governorship. He was self-indulgent and immature. The second time around is a whole different story. I mean, a lot of his personality is much the same, but he is, uh, he had obviously aged and gotten smarter and wiser and, and more mature, and he was more engaged. I mean, he's been very engaged in governing California for the last uh, eight years. And, uh, and better organized? Is that better an Better organized uh, all, all the way down the line. A mature person rather than a kid, mm-hmm. basically. And I can tell you, people around him thought of him as a kid, kind of a, a savant kid, but, but you know, he couldn't drive a car, he couldn't do it. I mean, he was he couldn't drive a car? Completely helpless at <laughs> that time. He, he didn't... He, he would crash a car at one time and he tried to drive a car. He would run around without any money and he would eat off other people's... Well, hey, I do that. I mean, what... He would eat and off I'm not other, governor. <laughs> he would eat off other people's plates. <laughs> really, he did. I mean, he was kind of a spoiled kid. And the second time around, it's much later, you know, three decades later, here he is, governor again. And much so what's his legacy? Age. I mean, you know, looking back, what, what do you see his legacy going forward? What would that be? How will people remember him? I think it's too early to tell because most of what he did in his second governorship, uh, the jury's still out on. We don't know. We don't know, for example, uh, whether this, the budget will, in fact, be, remain balanced. He was had a good economy and a tax increase, and he closed the deficit. But going forward, it could be. It, it we also made us more dependent on taxes on a few rich people, mm-hmm. so we could be in a, a bigger hole down the line. So we don't know about that. He, he did, made a big change in how schools are financed with the idea of closing the so-called achievement gap. We don't know whether it'll be closed or not. It'll be you know years before we know whether that worked out. We have all these things that he has done, a pension reform, a workers' compensation reform, some other things. We don't know how they're going to work out. It, it, you just can't say yet whether they're successes or failures. And there's also a lot of things that he didn't try to do. He didn't try to do tax reform, although he said it should be done. He didn't try to do uh, reforming the California Environmental Quality Act, even though he called it the Lord's work. He was an agnostic and would refuse to do, refuse to do that. He was willing to do things that had a fairly high degree of uh, possibility of success, or at least success in a political context of getting, getting yeah. something passed. He was not willing to take on things that were extraordinarily difficult, like tax reform. And so we don't know. We don't know what his legacy will be. What would his legacy, you think, be in, uh, you mentioned CEQA, uh, and environmentalism. He said publicly just a couple years ago he'd never met a CEQA exemption he didn't like when he was mayor of Oakland. uh, He saw some CEQA exemptions he did like. Uh, What do you you think about where he's going to be? How will environmental community look at him uh, some years from now. Well, the environmental community will like his advocacy of uh, reducing carbon emissions. 
Now, maybe that's a quixotic sort of a thing. California has less than 1% of the global emissions, so whether what California does is probably not going to make much difference in the long scheme of things, but he's tried to make California a global leader. Environmentalists will like that. They won't like him, probably, for uh, championing the tunnels underneath the uh, Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. They won't like his unwillingness to cut off fracking of oil. Uh, he has seemingly has some affection for the oil industry, maybe born of his family's connection in the oil industry. Is that that low sulfur Indonesian? Uh, High sulfur. Don't get me started. (laughs) Low sulfur Indonesian. (laughs) Uh, So they'll like some things that he's done. I mean, he's talked talked their their language most of the time. But he's also willing to make deals that they don't like. Uh, He made a cap-and-trade deal that they don't like. He's making, just as we're talking, he was making water deals that they don't like uh, to try to get some some get stop this conflict between the farmers and the environmentalists over water, but seemingly favoring the farmers, at least in the view of the environmentalists, they're not going to like that very much. They don't like that very much. They want to just crack down on farm agricultural water and let it be at that. So, you know, it's going to be a mixed bag. Yes, and you have to go back to his first governorship. What's the legacy of his first governorship? He, he sponsored a, a farm labor law uh, for agricultural workers, but it didn't ever help the United Farm Workers Union ever achieve anything but very minimal representation in the, in the farm, on farm labor. It's been, in a way, it's been a failure, a pretty abject failure, if the goal was to try to help farm workers unionize. He signed a, a union, or not a unionization, but a collective bargaining law for public employees. Uh, I think he even regrets that somewhat because it's made yeah. the public employee union so pl- powerful and it led to other things like a big pension crisis and whatnot. Uh, the, he did a few things during his first governorship, but they have had What about had the visionary question. stuff? What about the visionary? I mean, the things like uh, transportation, like uh, Adriana Gianturco and the Diamond Lanes and public transportation. And well, high-speed rail. High-speed high speed rail. What? Uh, so, I mean... Uh, does that fit factor in here somewhere? Well, the high-speed rail thing is one of those other unfinished symphonies. I mean, you don't know whether it's ever going to happen. I'd say the chances are less than 50-50 it's actually going to take place. Yeah. And even if it did, by the way, by the High-Speed Rail Commission's own data, it would only reduce automobile traffic in California by about 1%. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the airlines, they're the ones moving so, the opposition. So, you know, I mean, come on. Uh, the freeway business, the uh, diamond lanes on the freeway, those were actually started under uh, Reagan's administration. Jerry Brown became their defender, although he eventually turned away from it when, it be- when the diamond lanes became such a controversial thing in Los Angeles. He killed, off, killed it off. Uh, and uh, How about private space flight? Private space flight? Well, I guess. I mean, <coughs> you could say anything about a visionary. Yeah. You can say, well, we might happen, this might happen, this might happen. We yeah, can do sure. this with it. Yeah. And some of those actually come to fast, and some of them don't. But you remember the ones that come to pass. You don't remember the ones that don't. So uh, does it matter whether he was a visionary or not? No, I don't think he affected the outcome of any of these things. Uh-huh. Uh, he might have talked about, you know, he used to talk about space travel and planet Earth and all this kind of stuff. That's where he got the name Governor Moonbeam from Mike Royko, the columnist yeah. for the Chicago newspaper. Who later apologized. Who later recanted. Yes, yeah. he later recanted. And I think it's... That did a lot of good. And I recanting. Think, <laughs> and I think uh, <laughs> yeah. it could be said... Uh, although he would never admit it, that one of the reasons he came back into politics to run f- 
for the mayor of Oakland, attorney general, and governor, because I think he intended to run for governor again from the very onset of running for the mayor of Oakland, uh, was in a way to erase that governor movement image, to yeah. put himself in a better place in the history books, maybe not as exalted as his father, with whom he had a kind of a strange relationship, but at least a acceptable uh, record in the history books other than just being Governor Moonbeam. Yeah. And I think uh-huh. I yeah. think there's a lot to that. Although he, if you ask him, he said, we don't, there's no such thing as a legacy. Governors don't have legacies. You know, what's the legacy of Goodwin Knight? What's the legacy of George McMichigan? He doesn't say that. He doesn't include his father in that list, by the way, which is kind of interesting. You know, Tim used to have a, do a series of uh, events over time-tested books. Oh, the Living Library. The yeah. Living Library. And uh, it was just people who were involved in events Re- recollecting, you know, remembering those events and their views of what happened at the time. And I remember we did one on uh, on big cases, crime cases in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. There was the, the landlady. Quite a few in Sacramento. A lot of them. But one of them I thought was interesting. Um, uh, he used to be at, a, at the B, Jeff Ramundo, had, was over there. And he had mentioned, we were. he was talking about things he remembered from, you know, Brown and from other, right about that time. And he said the worst uh, discussion among Democrats, the most, the biggest denunciation of Brown he'd ever heard came from another Democrat, came from Leo McCarthy, mm-hmm. who on the floor denounced Brown for getting involved in the speakership fight. Yes, he so did. So it, it just seemed to me odd, uh, and he gave a lot of details, it, that sounded really bad, but it just seemed odd that that would be the, the same Brown who later would be the Democratic Party chair. Well, he, he, he wanted to come out of exile you know, and Mother Teresa in Japan, all he wanted to come out of exile and volunteered to become state Democratic chairman. He had a disastrous chairmanship <laughs> in 1990 with Diane Feinstein losing to Pete Wilson, and uh, and then said, "Oh, I'm resigning because I want to run for the U.S. Senate in 1992." And then he decided to run for president instead. But I think that's very interesting about Leo McCarthy because Leo, who was the speaker during his first. Uh, governorship, most of the time, anyway, uh, tried to help him, tried to help him negotiate through the legislature, because the legislature and Jerry Brown did not get along. The old, the old older legislators resented him as a snot-nosed kid, and, and, and who only was governor because his name was Brown, and so forth, and so he had to get anything through the legislature. He had to basically buy votes. He bought them with uh, judgeships, he bought them with highway projects. He bought votes. And, and it, once he was willing to do that, then everybody lined up to be bought, basically. And that's how he could do what small amount of stuff he could do was basically buying votes. And Leo tried to help him with that. And all he got from Jerry was uh, uh, trouble. Uh, they got into a huge row over uh, creating an... an liquefied natural gas uh, terminal near Santa Barbara at Point Conception. And at one point, Jerry publicly complained that McCarthy was dragging his feet on this vital legislation, which was being basically supported by his father and a bunch of business types and and the Indonesian oil firm that his father was connected with. Uh, We're going to do another podcast on Indonesian oil. uh, (laughs) We could do about it for hours on that one. Uh, but the, the, big, the big break did come in 1980 when Jerry Brown was openly helping uh, Howard Berman in his efforts to topple McCarthy from the, from the speakership. I mean, it, w- it wasn't even subtle. 
It was very blatant, and uh, it was a kind of a rekindling of his father's war with Jess Undra uh, about 15 years earlier. There was a there was a, a lot of bad blood between his father and Jess Undra, who was the speaker of the assembly at that time, and that, this kind of rekindled that whole battle because a lot of the people that were with McCarthy were former Undra type people, and it, 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 yeah. there was there was elements of that. And it was a very bitter battle over the speakership. Went on for a year. The two factions basically battled to a tie in 1980. And it was bizarre. There, the incidents, the behind-the-scenes incidents of that, there was a death threat. There was all sorts wow. of stuff that went on in that speakership battle. And eventually, it was a tie. They couldn't, neither, neither of the contenders could do it. And so Willie Brown stepped into the breach as a kind of the the compromise, as it were, mm-hmm. and it became, that's how his speakership uh, began. Uh, Leo had defeated Willie for the speakership in 74, I believe it was, and he had gone in kind of exile, and he kind of came out of exile and became a speaker mm-hmm. as the compromise between Leo McCarthy and Howard Berman. But Jerry did, and that was a, that was a breach of political uh, kind of standards for a sitting governor to try to unseat a sitting Speaker of the Assembly. It was yeah. bad blood, and it's amazing how that battle still reverberates today. Here we are talking thirty, almost forty years later, and it's still reverberating. Uh, there is still bad blood between various Democratic, old-time Democrats yeah. over where they were in that speakership battle at that time, and because it was so bitter, it was just it was just hatred on both sides. Uh, and dirty tactics, I said, death threats, uh, uh, cloak and dagger, following people around, tracing them. One assemblywoman was uh, was uh, forced out of running for re-election because it was going to be there was her ex-husband was going to run against her with all sorts of allegations about her oh, great. infidelity and stuff like that. I mean, it, this thing was this was nasty stuff. And uh, did term limits kind of come? Roots of term limits after Willie got in, I've heard that term limits was sort of an anti-Willie started well, out as an anti I think the term limits were an anti It was the, the Willie Brown era, and this is after Jerry had left the governorship, but the Willie Brown era during the 1980s was a kind of a no-holds-barred-anything-goes. Uh, it was corruption. going, And finally the FBI did come in with yeah. an investigation, an undercover investigation. A lot of people went to prison. Legislators, lobbyists, staffers, and that's what kind of and it was seen as it, Willie was largely seen as kind of the person who kind of presided over that era. Although he himself was never uh, never charged with anything, and that's what fueled the the term limits. But but the person who began the term limit movement, uh, who was a Los Angeles County supervisor, uh, he hated Willie Brown, and he obviously was trying to target Willie Brown. And then Pete Wilson, who was Running for governor at the time in 1990, picked that up as his one of his causes as well, and the thing passed. And where was Brown on term limits? I don't remember. He was he was not engaged mm-hmm. in that effort. He was engaged in trying to resuscitate the Democratic Party, which sounds very quaint this time. But you remember, Republicans were in great resurgence in this state in the 1980s. So I mean, you think Jim Brolte should pay close attention to this part of the <laughs> podcast? <laughs> well. Uh, the Democrats were were worried about becoming the minority party in California. 
the Republicans, there were 10 top of the ticket elections in California in the, between 1980 and 1990 for president, governor, U.S. senator. Republicans won eight of the 10. The only two exceptions wow. were two re-elections by Alan Cranston. And, and the party was in great disarray at that time. And Jerry came in saying, oh, I'm going to fix it, right? And he didn't fix it, <laughs> as a matter of fact, and then kind of slunk out the back door and went off to run for president again. What do you think he's going to do uh, after he leaves the governorship? We went to his last campaign event when he ran for the governorship the last time here. And up in Calusa, they said he's going to run for mayor of Calusa. That's a joke. That's not <laughs> happen. He's not that popular up there. I mean, that's a Republican area. Yeah. And he's not that popular up there. I think he will be a roving ambassador uh, for, for climate change, mm-hmm. to battling climate change. He's got a position. You know, he's been named the head of some sort of organization. And I think you'll see him rolling around the world going to all these climate change conferences and, and at least as long as Donald Trump's president being considered the head of state <laughs> for climate change, American climate change. Uh, and, uh, you know, he'll have a life. I would like him to write his memoirs, but he's not inclined for some reason to write stuff. He, he, he other than bill vetoes and things like that. But I would like him to write his memoirs. I think it would be a very valuable addition to California's political history. Has anybody approached him with that, asked him no to do idea. that? or no? I have, And I don't think he'll do it. I don't think he... It's the sort of thing, introspective thing, that he would probably do. Well, and you need to find a Latin translator as well to, to translate it back into English. So I took a little Latin when I was a kid. I, I understand some of this stuff. <laughs> Great. Dan Walters, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. Tim Walters, Tim Foster, thank you very much. And this is John Howard. We'll see you next time around. Thank you.